Our passage this morning is taken from the 14th chapter of the book of Revelation. We'll read the first part together now, and then the rest as we move through it. Revelation 14, verses 1 through 5. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps, and they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. They have been redeemed from mankind as the firstfruits for God and the Lamb, and in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. This is God's word for us this morning. You may be seated. As we begin the Lent season, uh, this being the first Sunday of Lent, what we're actually going to do is continue our study of the book of Revelation for two more Sundays, the first two Sundays of Lent, today and next week. Uh, There's two reasons for that. First of all, that will bring us to a natural break in Revelation where we can take a pause. Uh, Also, because these first Uh, These these next two sermons from the book of Revelation fit pretty well with the season of Lent anyway. What's going to happen after that for the final four Sundays of Lent leading up to Palm Sunday right before Easter is we will spend those four weeks looking at each of the major themes of the Lent devotional that we are working through together. God's plan to create a new world, reconcile himself to mankind on the basis of faith through the work of his Messiah. So we will be fully engaged in the Lent season together through the sermons starting in a couple of weeks. This morning and next Sunday, we're going to finish out this section of Revelation, chapters 14, 15, which is very short, and 16. And as I mentioned a moment ago, it's very appropriate a uh, couple of chapters to be looking at during the season of Lent, a season in which we as Christians focus our hearts on preparing for Easter to celebrate the death and resurrection of Jesus, and we do that by focusing on our sin, our need for a Savior, our willingness to repent of our sin, which then ushers us right into Easter weekend when we can fully appreciate the sacrifice of our Savior on our behalf. This morning's passage takes us there, and it kind of wraps up Um, a major section of the book of Revelation of chapters 12, 13, and now finishing the series of visions here in chapter 14. Uh, Chapter 14 divides into three parts, very similar to the way chapter 12 did. The content is different. The structure is very similar. Uh, The first and the third part are uh, visions that the apostle John receives. We just read the first one, a vision of heaven. The last one is actually a vision of judgment and hell. So we get both extremes in this chapter. And then in the middle... There's a series of three angelic proclamations that sort of serve to interpret the first and the third visions and tie the whole chapter together. So that's kind of what's going on here. What we're going to do is walk through each part consecutively and see what God has for us this morning. First, this opening vision of heaven in Revelation chapter 14, verses 1 through 5. 
John sees a picture of 144,000 people who are standing with the Lamb. Now, we've already met the Lamb before. That's going all the way back to the vision of heaven in chapter 5. The Lamb clearly is Jesus Christ. Uh, Much of Revelation's imagery and symbolism that's so characteristic of this book is very vivid, but a lot of it is really not difficult to figure out what it means. Uh, Some of them are a little obscure. Some of the images are a little obscure and more debated, but most of the images are pretty straightforward. This constant recurring image of a lamb is very clearly pointing to Jesus Christ, a lamb who is sacrificed just like Old Testament uh, sacrificial animals. He was sacrificed, but he is now alive, and he was the one, you recall, who took the scroll from the hand of God the Father and is now seated on the throne and reigning. So here he is on Mount Zion, which in, um, that's where Jerusalem is, and in Old Testament prophecy, Zion took on the whole idea of the city of God, the dwelling place of God. And, and let me just mention here briefly, we're going to see this much more in chapter 17 and 18. But let me just mention briefly again something we've alluded to before. This is another example of a whole new set of images that's going to come up in Revelation and recur again over and over. You have the city of man versus the city of God. And everybody belongs to one of two camps. There is the Babylonian Empire. Babylon or Rome are often the images for the city of man. We're going to see Babylon a little bit later in this chapter. And then Jerusalem or Zion represents the city of God. So this is this image here. Here's 144,000 people standing with Jesus in God's city, essentially in heaven. And they have already been marked, the Bible tells us, by having the name of the Lamb and the name of God the Father written on their foreheads. Now, if you were with us last Sunday, you immediately remembered the way that chapter 13 ended right before this, where chapter 14 is beginning. Chapter 13 ended with all the followers of the beast, these great world powers that are opposed to God and are ultimately um, driven and manipulated by Satan himself. The followers of the beast are marked by the beast. They're marked for ownership. Well, now here we see God's people marked for ownership from God. Everybody belongs to one of two camps. Everybody has one of two marks. Everybody in the world. Whose camp do you belong to? These 144,000 are the same group that we ran into back in chapter 7. We've seen them before, and we talked um, several weeks ago when we looked at that chapter about how they are a representative group for all Christians everywhere. So John here is getting a vision of Christians safe in heaven, like they've already gone through life on this earth, and they are now together with God in heaven. This is a picture of our eternal home, and it is a party. The scene in heaven is a party. These people are celebrating. There's this huge uh, voice, this roar, and it's coming from this multitude of people. As they, John realizes they're singing a song, and he notes that the voice sounded like harpists playing on their harps. Now, right away, we've got to take a quick pause and say, wait a minute, time out. Let's make sure we understand what's being said there. <laughs> because we have harps today, and what do you think of when you think of harp music? You don't usually think of a raucous party. Harps are mellow instruments. Harps are what they play in like a, a spa or, or a massage parlor, somewhere where you're just trying to like get relaxed, right? Get a little fountain of water and the harp music playing in the background. I mean, it's relaxing and it's mellow. Back in the Old Testament days, the harp was a rocking instrument. It might have been more like, you know, the banjo. 
or the electric guitar or something. I mean, this was, it was a festal instrument. People would break these things out and strum them and pluck them when they were dancing and singing in the streets and a big festival and celebration. That's the image that's being portrayed here. They are singing, they are playing instruments, and they are singing uh, praises to God for their salvation. And what's so interesting about this is they are the ones who are singing, and the angelic beings who are briefly mentioned here are silent. They sing this song uh, before the four living creatures and before the elders. Again, we ran into all those characters all the way back in Revelation chapter 4. These are angelic beings surrounding the throne of God. And back in chapter 4, we were told that the angelic beings themselves never shut up. They themselves are constantly singing. They're constantly shouting God's praise day and night without ceasing, except twice in the book of Revelation. The first time was in chapter 8 where there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour before God sends in the final judgment, a breathless anticipation. The other place where we see the angels not singing is right here. They're silent. It's only the people that are singing and the angels are listening to the song because the people are singing a song about being redeemed about being sinners who were bought by the gracious and merciful blood of God and who now have life because of how great God is. And angels have never experienced that. They've never sinned. They've never fallen away from God, so they've never been redeemed. And so all they can do is sit back in awe and listen to people who were redeemed by the grace of God, sing to God of his grace, and join in worship silently as they listen in. God's people take center stage in praising God for their salvation and they are enjoying him for all eternity in a celebration that will last forever. These people are also referred to, incidentally, as being um, sexually pure. They are virgins. Uh, That's part of the symbolism of the book of Revelation. Actually, Throughout the entire Bible, uh, marriage has been a picture of God's relationship with his people, and faithfulness to God has been um, uh, made analogous to sexual faithfulness between a husband and wife, And, and many, many times throughout both the Old and the New Testaments, God will see his people committing idolatry, worshiping other idols, and he will liken that to adultery. You're cheating on me. You're being unfaithful to me. Uh, So many examples that probably most vivid would be the Old Testament prophet Hosea, whom God sends to marry a prostitute, and then she continues in prostitution, violating their marriage vow. And the whole point, God says, is an illustration. He says, this is what it's like for me to have you as my people. It's like being married to a prostitute. You keep going and worshiping other gods, you see. And so there's this constant language of sexual fidelity in a marriage uh, equated to spiritual faithfulness to God. And so when it says that all these Christians were uh, faithful, that, that they, were, they were virgins, they, they were sexually faithful, it's a way of saying that they are spiritually faithful to God. They, these are ones who never caved in. These are ones who never took the mark of the beast, no matter how much it caused them. These are ones that never bowed their knee to false gods just to escape some pain and suffering in this life. These are Christians who stayed faithful. We know that because we know there's not only men in heaven. You're welcome, ladies. (laughs) This is not just guys who, who have not had sexual relations with women. That's a symbol of saying this is the people of God who have stayed faithful to God and they are enduring uh, or receiving their eternal reward. What an incredible vision of the ultimate destination for God's people. Having refused the mark of the beast and staying loyal to Jesus is worth it. That's the point of the vision. 
You see how this flows right from chapter 12, where Satan, pictured as a, a sea monster or a dragon, was deposed from heaven, and he runs off to make war on the people of God, and then he does it in chapter 13 primarily through two agents, overt hostility, the beast, and subtle false teaching, the false prophet or the second beast of chapter 13, both of which are demanding allegiance, and if you don't, you'll pay a price. But God here is now saying, and if you pay that price now, it will be worth it in the end. Let me show you what it's going to be like to be with me for all eternity. This is your home. It's worth it. It's worth it. Now that leads us into the angelic proclamations. We go straight from this vision of heaven into these three angelic proclamations of the earth. Let me read verses 6 through 13. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Then another angel, a second, followed saying, fallen. Fallen is Babylon the great, she who made all nations drink the wine of the wrath of her sexual immorality. And then another angel, a third, followed, saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, then he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. Here, John tells us, is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus and I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are those, uh, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow them. As we mentioned, these three angelic proclamations sort of serve to interpret or help us understand the meaning of these visions, first of heaven, and we'll see in a few moments, um, a rather horrifying vision of hell. The, the three proclamations of the angels sort of tie those two together to make one cohesive chapter, and each proclamation builds on the previous one. Uh, the first angel comes along, and he essentially preaches the gospel. He preaches the gospel. It says, to, to everyone on the earth, people from all tribes, tongues, nations, all religions, all ethnic backgrounds, are called by God in the Bible to repent of their false worldviews and embrace Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And he, he enjoins people, repent because the judgment of God is coming. And you now have the opportunity to avoid that judgment because of who Jesus is and what he's done for you. So, Bow to the God who created the heavens and the earth. Bow to the one who is calling you to repent. Repent and embrace the gospel of Jesus. The first angel is telling people to come to faith in Christ and embrace Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. The second angel follows on with this. He ends up talking about the sure doom of the beast that we saw in chapter 13. Now, once again, it's referred to here as Babylon, which was an ancient uh, empire, a world power. 
And we'll talk more, especially when we get to chapter 17 and 18, um, about Babylon and, and why <clears throat> that is the image that's chosen and how that imagery works. But again, it goes back to this idea of here's the forces of the world and the people of the world who are against God, symbolized and represented by a beast in chapter 13, a couple of them actually, and then other places of the Bible symbolized by the Roman Empire, which is tied to the imagery of the beast, or the ancient Babylonian Empire. These all become symbols of proud and arrogant mankind who refuses to submit to the lordship of God. Mankind who insists on remaining in rebellion against God. And he says, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. Babylon here, representing this arrogant humanity, the point is that as strong and as powerful as anti-godly forces appear to be in history, their doom is sure. Chapter 13, verse 4, the beast was said to be unstoppable. That verse says, they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? So often in this world, when you're talking about, uh, as we talked about last week, whole governments, in many cases, that are overtly and violently opposed to the spread of the gospel of Jesus. And if you're in a society like that, I mean, who can fight the government? Who can fight the secret police? You're not going to beat them through brute force. You're just not strong enough. The, the beast seems overpowering. And for a time, from human beings' perspective, it is. But this angel's announcement is telling us, but its doom is sure. It looks invincible now, but the beast will fall. God will bring final judgment one day. And when he does... Satan and all of the world forces that he has employed against the gospel will meet their doom. Again, it's a call to faithfulness for Christians. And that leads directly uh, into the proclamation of the third angel. Not only will the beast, or in this case Babylon, fall, but everybody who follows the beast will ultimately share that fate in the end. This third angel's proclamation is essentially to tie the fate of those who follow the beast with the fate of the beast. The beast, as invincible as he appears, will be defeated, and when he does, everybody who has hitched their wagon to him will follow him straight down into eternal judgment in hell. And there is no escaping the fact that the language here is the language of eternal torment in hell. We'll say more about that in just a moment. Let's wrap up these three visions first, and then we'll return to the imagery of eternal judgment. When you wrap up all three of these proclamations, what are you supposed to make of it? Well, fortunately, the Apostle John, who's writing this in the first century, does us a huge favor. Twice now, in two chapters, two consecutive chapters, he's basically said to us, by the way, do you want to know what you're supposed to take away from all these images I'm throwing at you? Here it is. And he just gives it to us. He tells us, here's how you're supposed to apply what I'm teaching you. Verse 12, here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and those who keep their faith in Jesus. You see, these proclamations help us to understand the chapter as it connects to the previous two. 
Again, chapter 12 saw Satan, pictured as a a dragon, a sea monster, defeated in heaven and now storming off to make war on Christians in the earth. Then chapter 13 showed us how he does so, through overt hostility, a beast, and through subtle false teaching, a false prophet. But both those efforts, whether they are overt or covert, whether they are forcefully violent or subtly deceptive, both efforts demand ultimate loyalty and ultimate allegiance from people. That's the imagery of receiving the mark. Will you go along with the spirit of the age? Will you bow to the pressure of the age that says, do not give full allegiance to Jesus Christ, but give full allegiance to the state, or give full allegiance to yourself, or give full allegiance to whatever is the popular idea in that day, anything but Jesus Christ. Will we bow to that and go along with that? That's receiving the mark of the beast. Or will we continue to say, Jesus Christ is my Lord, even if it means my death? That's receiving the mark of a lamb. Those who refuse the mark of the beast, or sorry, the mark of the lamb, and swear loyalty to the Satan-driven powers of the day, They get along pretty well in this world. Because if you go along with the dominant godless spirit of any society, regardless of which society it is, basically you can get along fine. You can go buy, you can go sell, you can go get along just fine in life and people largely leave you alone. On the other hand, those who refuse the mark of the beast are persecuted and their lives are made miserable here on earth because you will not bow and you will not submit. You will pay a price for that. That's the picture here. But those people are the ones, remember, who are ultimately vindicated in verses 1 through 5. They're the, the vision, they're there uh, in, in heaven. That's the vision of heaven. So if you take the mark of the lamb, you suffer the wrath of the beast, but then you ultimately are vindicated for all eternity. On the other hand, if you take the mark of the beast so that you can get along well in this life and refuse the mark of the lamb, you will face the wrath of the lamb which is eternal wrath in final judgment. If you hitch your wagon to the beast's star, his star is falling, and you will fall with him. And so John tells us, the point of all this, if you're a Christian, endure. (laughs) That's what you're supposed to take away from this. Endure. Stay faithful to the gospel. Stay faithful to the truths of Scripture, no matter how much you are mocked or ridiculed or outright attacked or made to suffer. By your society for doing so. Endure, because it may be bad for a little while, but you will end up, verses 1 through 5, in heaven. Your choice will be vindicated. Don't cave. It's tempting sometime, but you know that that beast is going down in flames. You don't want to go with him. This is a call for endurance. And verse 13 wraps it up by saying, blessed are those who die in the Lord from now on because they have a great future to look forward to. They may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. For their deeds follow them. Every act of suffering in this life, every sacrifice that a Christian makes for the gospel, no matter how small or no matter how great, will be remembered and will be rewarded. That's the promise. That's the promise. Jesus spoke this pretty plainly in Matthew chapter 19, verses 27 to 30. 
where he says this, Peter said um, to him, this is in the context of, of the rich young man coming to Jesus and saying, I followed all the law, what else do I need to do? And Jesus says, go sell all your possessions. And the guy goes, oh, really? And he goes away sad because he loved his money too much. Well, then Peter says in response to that scene to Jesus, see, we have left everything and followed you, meaning the disciples. What then will we have? And interestingly, Jesus doesn't turn around and rebuke him and say, Peter, you selfish guy, you shouldn't be worried about your reward. He says, let me tell you about your reward. It's going to be great. Verse 28, Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, in the new world, that's the new heavens and the new earth, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel, and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life on top of that. Many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. You see what Jesus is saying there? Every sacrifice, every piece of suffering, everything that is taken from me in order to serve Jesus Christ in this world, Jesus says, will be remembered. And you will see that choice vindicated in eternity. The payoff will be worth it. This is a call for the, uh, for the endurance of the saints. Nothing suffered in Jesus' service is ever wasted. Nothing. No relationship that gets broken because of your faithfulness to the gospel. No ridicule that you have to suffer or face. No financial damage that is done to you. Nothing is ever wasted. That's his promise. It's a call to stay faithful and to keep our eyes fixed on the joy set before us, just as Jesus himself did. Hebrews 12, 2, when he was on the cross, he endured that pain for the joy set before him. That's what the Bible's trying to get us to recognize here. Now that leads us to the third and final part of this chapter. We've seen, first of all, this vision of heaven, the payoff for staying faithful to God in the midst of a world that is not. We've seen these three angelic proclamations, the call to everybody to repent, the sure downfall of Satan and a world system that is opposed to God in the future, and the downfall of everybody else who goes along with it. That leads us right into these two final visions of judgment. Verses 14 through the end of the chapter in verse 20. Both of them are agricultural analogies, analogies of harvest, drawn from Joel chapter 3. Let me read these verses for us. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud... And seated on the cloud, one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire. And he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia, 
about 184 miles. Two potent and vivid visions. The first one I want to touch on quickly, the second is more detailed. Uh, I mentioned both of these are um, rooted in Joel chapter 3, uh, verse 13, which speaks of God's um, ultimate wrath in agricultural terms. Joel chapter 3, verse 13 says, Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Go in and tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their evil is great. So the Old Testament prophet Joel was looking ahead to the day when God would bring final judgment, and he uses this imagery of harvesting like wheat and grain, and then harvesting grapes in a winepress. That's the language that gets picked up by John in Revelation chapter 14. In the first vision, a, a reaper um, harvesting grain like, like wheat or barley or something uh, goes in with his sharp sickle and he's, he cuts down all of the, the stalks of wheat or of grain because they're ripe, it's, it's harvest time. And that's essentially the nature of the vision. Uh, the vision is straightforward. It simply indicates that God will bring his final judgment at the right time at the right time. And of course, only God knows when that is. So our minds are taken back to Revelation chapter 6 when the fifth seal was broken. And you may recall that we saw the souls of Christians who had been killed, murdered for their faith, and they are crying out to God, how long, O Lord, until you punish those who murdered us? Because people murdered us and our murderers are getting away with murder. Literally. And we pointed out back then, they're not really crying out for personal vengeance as much as they're crying out for justice. Injustice and violence is covering the earth. God, how long are you going to let this go on? And back then they were told, wait a little while. Wait a little while. Not yet. I'm holding off judgment so that more and more people may repent. But now this vision comes along and says, but God knows when judgment will come and he will not hold it off forever. Final judgment will surely come. That leads us into the last vision which is much more detailed, and quite frankly, it is much more gruesome. Theologian Don Carson calls this the most horrifying picture of hell in the entire Bible, and I'm inclined to agree with him. It's a uh, picture, the image is of a wine press in ancient times. Now, a wine press would have looked something, I skipped a slide, there's our wheat harvest. The wine harvest looks like this. It, it might have looked something like this. Uh, this is an artist's illustration of a, an ancient a wine press in ancient Israel. This would have been a large one at a fairly large or wealthy vineyard where sort of out of the sand and limestone, they're able to cut these vats. And the rock is easy to cut, but it's apparently pretty good at holding liquid. So you would get um, a vat, either smaller, in this case a rather large one, where they would throw in the grapes that they would harvest. And then the, uh, the farm workers would uh, kick off their shoes and hike up their robes and get in there and walk around and stomp on the grapes. That's how they would squeeze the juice out of the grapes. Not the most sanitary way to do things, but you know, they didn't really understand bacteria and all that stuff back then the way we do now, and so this is how they did it. And so these guys would stomp on those grapes, you see that kind of in the upper left corner there, and then either through holes in the bottom of the vat, or in this case, they've got channels cut in it, eventually they, they would stomp on enough grapes that the juice would squirt out, and then the juice would run down a little rivulet into a vat, uh, just a, a hole in the rock, and there it would collect and they would let it ferment for a few days. And when the fermentation process was done, you had wine, and they would scoop it out and put it in bottles. That's essentially kind of how the process worked. 
Now, while these guys are stomping around, of course, they're getting grape juice all over their legs and it would spatter on their clothes. And in the Old Testament prophet Isaiah, God uses this as a horrifying picture of his final judgment. Let me read a couple verses from Isaiah chapter 63, which is where Revelation 14 is really coming from. Isaiah chapter 63, verses 2 to 4. Speaking of future judgment... Isaiah says this, Why is your apparel red? And why are your garments like the one who treads the winepress? So God is pictured here having red spattered all over his clothes. And he goes on to answer, God speaking says, I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger, and I trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption had come. I trampled down the peoples in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath, and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. What a horrifying picture. God is taking an image like this one that that anybody in the ancient world would have been familiar with. And he's saying, you know what? That's a picture of what it's going to be like when I bring final judgment. All those people who refused to repent, who continued to insist on rebelling against me, eventually justice will be done. And so God says, I'm like the one treading the wine press, except instead of grapes being thrown into the vat that God is stomping on, it is people that are being thrown into the vat, and God is crushing them in his judgment until their death is sure and their blood flows like the grape juice. It's a horrifying picture, and that's what John picks up here in Revelation chapter 14. He uses it as a horrifying image of God pouring out his just wrath on unrepentant worshipers of the beast. Those who refuse the days of mercy now when there's an opportunity to repent and continue to remain obstinate in the rebellion against God will eventually be judged. It's a horrifying picture of eternal hell. Now the vividness of the imagery has its desired effect, doesn't it? Um... It fuels our imaginations. It gets under our skin. You can't help but imagine that scene as God is describing it. And I mean, something would be wrong with you if if it didn't just make your skin crawl, if there wasn't some revulsion to it at one level. And and I believe that that's intentional on God's part. Why would he he give us this kind of a picture? What's, What's he getting at? What's he saying? I want to close with at least four thoughts that may help us kind of process the Bible's teachings on hell, particularly this particular image. There's a lot more than four things to say about the Bible's teaching on hell, but we have time this morning for four points. First of all, and we're going to move from the general more into the specific of the scripture. First thing to point out is that the reaction that we have in America today to the Bible's teaching about hell is almost universally negative. You just mention hell to people who aren't Christians, and it's, it's a non-starter. It shuts down the conversation. There's a whole bunch of people that say, that's exactly why I can never be a Christian. Because you believe it's this God who, who would send people to an eternal hell of torment. That just sounds 
awful. I could never believe in that. It just, it just makes the Bible unbelievable for so many people. And even as Christians, many of us start to, oh, we really squirm when the Bible starts talking about this. It's worth pointing out that at least part of our revulsion is actually culture-bound. It's culture-bound. Uh, Tim Keller makes this point. He talked about um, some time that he spent in London and he was talking, as he often does, with um, skeptics, well-educated people who find the Bible difficult to believe for one reason or another. But he was at a university in London, and he ran across a Chinese graduate student, um, very, very bright, well-educated man, come from China, was probably going back there, but he was in London to do some education. And, and Keller said he was a little bit surprised <laughs> when he asked the guy, you know, why, why do you not believe the Bible? What do you find difficult to believe about it? And the guy, when they were talking about hell, the guy flat out said, I have no problem with the idea of hell. That makes, I mean, if God is there, that makes total sense. That's not an issue for me at all. Oh, well, then, then, then what is your objection to the Bible? And this Chinese graduate student said, my objection to the Bible is this. I could never come to believe in a God who would separate me from all of my ancestors. Now, if you know anything about the Eastern worldview or Chinese culture, that actually makes some sense. Because in, in the West, in America, and in Europe, the individual is the most important thing. Individual people are what matters, and, and larger groups and societies and families are secondary to the individual. And in many Asian cultures, it's exactly the opposite. The individual is subservient to the group. You, they're, they're honor cultures. You live for the honor of your family. The family and, and, and the name of the family is everything. And so for this Chinese graduate student, he was just appalled at the idea that some of his ancestors might not be with him in heaven. He says, I can't get over that. I could never believe in a God who did that. Now, I hazard a guess to say that ancestry is usually not on the top of the list of the reason Americans have problems with the Bible. We can't get over hell. He didn't have a problem with that. We don't even understand his issue about ancestors, but for him, that was a major deal. Keller points out one other lady he talked to, a Middle Eastern lady, also a graduate student there. <clears throat> She, too, said she had um, no problem with the idea of hell. I mean, after all, actually, that, that made all the sense in the world to her. I mean, if God is there, then he, like, he owns us, right? As Keller tells the story, she's like, I mean, he owns everything, and, and, and he has the right to determine right and wrong and, and, and to send people wherever he wants. I mean, that, that makes all the sense in the world. That's not a problem. My objection to biblical Christianity, she says, is I could never accept the Bible's teachings on forgiveness that you're supposed to forgive no matter what somebody has done to you, you just forgive them. That's un I, I, unacceptable. I cannot countenance a God that would demand I forgive everybody. Couldn't get past it. Now, the funny thing is, in America, we love the Bible's teachings about forgiveness, right? Hey, who doesn't like a, another dose of second chances? Sure, forgive, that's wonderful, that's great. We think that's fabulous, but we can't get over hell. You talk to somebody from a different culture, they have hell, no problem with hell, they can't get over forgiveness. You see, to some extent, these issues are culture-bound. The Bible is going to confront and, and rub against every culture somewhere, and it just so happens that the teach, its teachings on hell are one of the places where the Bible rubs against American culture and just a head-on collision, because in our culture, we so elevate the individual. We so believe in the inherent goodness of man and the sacred right of every person to determine his or her own destiny for him or herself 
that the idea of an almighty God who is sovereign over us, punishing us justly for refusing to submit to him is just a non-starter. But it may be worth reflecting on what is it about our culture that makes us think that way when so many other really smart people in the world have no problem with it. Just one thing to think about. Some of our reaction to hell is culture-bound. Second point, there is no indication either in this passage or any other passage of scripture that talks about hell, and there are a lot of them, there is never any indication of repentance in hell. And I think that's useful to dispel a common caricature. Sometimes the idea of hell is that like, hell is a place that God sends people who really didn't know any better. I mean, sure, they were probably sinning, but I mean, come on. People are people. They really didn't know any better. But too late, they died, so God sends them to hell, and all the while they're falling down into this fiery pit, they're screaming, oh, stop, I'm sorry, let me out. And God says, nope, don't care, too late, and he's just hard and cold about it. Like they committed some finite sins, and they're just punished for all eternity. And and they don't want to be there. They really want to get out. They're really, really sorry and repentant. But it's interesting, in the Bible, when it talks about hell, which it does repeatedly, never is there any indication that anyone is ever repentant. How do sinners respond to God's judgment in the book of Revelation? We've already seen examples, such as chapter 9, where the trumpet judgments were being announced. And it says after the first six of those seven, despite all of these severe judgments, people still did not repent of their evil. Just like the Pharaoh in ancient Egypt who Moses executed the ten plagues on, God's judgment tends to harden the obstinacy of an obstinate heart. It tends to harden the rebelliousness of a rebellious heart, even further against God. We're going to see in chapter 16, where people are repeatedly shown as cursing God and shaking their fist at him for the judgments that he is sending. God's judgment doesn't produce repentance, generally speaking. It hardens a sinner's heart. Don Carson says, hell's not a place where people receive infinite punishment for finite sins. It's a place where people keep on sinning and are continually punished. And keep on sinning and are continually punished. And keep on sinning and are continually punished. C.S. Lewis said, all those who are in hell, choose it. And he was onto something there. Because we believe that an eternity apart from God where I am king is better than an eternity where God is king and so we live for ourselves. And the Bible says that's not true. As sacred a value as that is to your culture, it's not true. God is sovereign and life is found when he is on the throne. So on the one hand, there's some culture-bound Uh, reasons for our revulsion. On the other hand, there's, there's never any indication of repentance in hell. This is a just judgment. That leads me to the third point, which really gets right into the heart of the book of Revelation. In the Bible, hell is the ultimate demonstration of God's justice. It's the ultimate demonstration of justice, not injustice, but justice. And there needs to be a demonstration of justice because God's mercy calls his justice into question. And the Bible is shot through with proclamations of his mercy and examples of his mercy. And God's mercy creates a justice problem. It does. Think about it. If God is merciful on somebody, he doesn't punish them for their sins, does that mean that the sins then go unpunished? 
If God is merciful by letting evildoers get away with evil, and many times they do get away with evil in this world in which we live, is, and and he's, he's deliberately delaying justice so that people have an opportunity to repent. That's a mercy on God's part. But is he then going to just let sin go unpunished? Is he going to let evil go free? Is, is he going to let wrongs continue on this earth? Think of it this way. Someone shared this illustration years ago. I can't even remember who it was, but it's a good point. Think of Psalm 51 in the Bible. Many Christians, one of our favorite psalms, David's confession psalm. King David, who uh, uh, refuses to do his duty and go to war, he, he sees this beautiful woman Bathsheba taking a bath, he becomes consumed with lust, he commits adultery with her, they have a baby, he tries to cover it up, he lies, he manipulates, and at the end when all of his lying and manipulation don't work, he ultimately ends up having her husband killed murdered to cover up his own series of sins and for three years he goes on unrepentant until finally he repents and he writes psalm 51 a beautiful psalm of confession and brokenness and repentance god i'm wrong you were right please forgive me and god pours out his mercy on david it's a beautiful psalm isn't it is it it is if you're david I got mercy. I got forgiven. Yay story. Yay me. How does Psalm 51 look from the perspective of Uriah's mother? It's her son that got murdered by the king. The guy who had all the power and, and add insult to injury. He's the Israelite king. He's supposed to be a godly king. And, and he takes my son's wife, that was my daughter-in-law, the child that they had together was supposed to be my grandchild, that was my son's wife. He violated the sanctity of my son's marriage and he ultimately murders my son and then he says, I'm sorry and God lets him get away with it? Where's the justice in that? You see, there's this constant tension running throughout the Bible. Mercy and justice. Mercy and justice. And just when you think you're, you're kind of balancing them out, suddenly the other one has fallen off. And just when it comes to the forefront, suddenly this one goes down too. And it's like this whole constant sense of how is this going to work? How can God be merciful on people and be just? Punish evil. The final judgment is the promise that God will right every wrong and punish every act of evil. Friends, there may be more difficulty imagining the existence of a God without hell than there is imagining the existence of a God with hell. Because a God without hell cannot be just because there's some sins that are just going to be swept under the carpet. And if those are sins committed against other people, maybe we don't care so much. If they're sins committed against us, we might feel differently about it. Can God really be counted on to be just? He promises Every wrong will be righted, and every evil will be punished one day. That leads us to our fourth and final point, and frankly, this is by far the most important. Hell, of all the things the Bible says about it, one thing it makes clear, hell is eminently avoidable by every person because of who Jesus Christ is and because of what he's done. 
when we see the revulsion of this picture, this, this vat that's treading out of the wrath of the winepress of God, the blood of unrepentant sinners flowing, as it makes our skin crawl, what the Bible wants to do with that is take that sensation and then redirect that feeling toward Easter Sunday and Good Friday where Jesus Christ took hell upon himself for sins he never committed. The cross was his vat of God's wrath that he was thrown into. And under it, the Bible says in Isaiah, God was pleased to crush him in that vat for our sins. And it was his blood that flowed. Literally. So that your blood and my blood would never have to. That's the amazing heart of biblical Christianity. Yes, God is merciful. And yes, God is absolutely just. And justice and mercy meet perfectly in the cross where Jesus Christ pays with his own infinitely valuable life for every sin and justice is satisfied. But he does it in our place so that we would not have to. And mercy is magnified. At the cross, justice is satisfied, mercy is magnified, and God is glorified because he is awesome. That's what this Lent and Easter season is all about. The severity of our sin, the reality of impending judgment. We don't know when, only God knows when, but the Bible is clear. It will surely come. And friends, now, now are the days of mercy. Now are the days to repent and experience God's love and mercy rather than his just wrath. And now are the days to send that message as far and wide as we can, as God gives us breath in our lungs to do it, animated by a heart that is so captivated with who God is that we can barely contain ourselves. My prayer is that that would be our experience this Lent season as a church family. Father, we want to come before you fully acknowledging that your word often takes us places that make us uncomfortable, that make us swallow a little bit hard, and that sometimes we're not super excited about, even though we acknowledge that it's probably good. But I'm also grateful that your mercy makes your judgment, it puts it in such stark relief it makes you so trustworthy that you're never going to sweep evil under the carpet, and yet it makes you so gracious that I don't have to face the penalty for my own sin because you faced it for me. I pray for the heart of every man and woman in this room that you would meet us where we are today. And for those especially who have not yet embraced you as the one true God and the only path to salvation, Spirit of God, I pray that you would draw people home, that in your mercy you would woo us to yourself. And that as a church, we would be so consumed and inflamed with how awesome you are that we couldn't help but pray and beg you for opportunities to let other people know that they too can escape your surely coming just wrath and spend eternity with you as your children in heaven the way you have opened up a way for us to do. What a Savior. In his name we praise now. In Christ's name, amen.